0: Revelation chapter number seven this morning. My message is entitled "The Unnamed, Unnumbered Multitude." Now I am so sorry that I don't have a catchy title for you today. I am just not good at catchy titles. I remember years ago I was preaching a summer camp back in Idaho, and um, you know some of the uh, some of the youth leaders they always had this catchy little titles and illustrations and messages, and and uh, the kids always responded well to it. I remember one time I tried that, and I had this catchy message. I'm not even going to tell you what it was. I'm so embarrassed. But I had this catchy, basically, illustration kind of object lesson, and I made a huge mistake of working my message around the illustration rather than the illustration around the Bible message. And I was really proud of what I had. I did a bunch of study. I did a bunch of research. And I mean, I was really excited about this message. And I got up and I preached it and God was not within a billion miles of me. And I was dying a thousand deaths trying to get through, trying to preach to these kids. And I'm like, God is nowhere near this. And I like, I never want that to happen again. But You know, sometimes we'll try to come up with a clever, catchy title just for sake of you remembering it. I'm all for using things like that just to make an impression and so forth, but when it comes to being catchy and clever, I'm sorry, y'all. I just don't have it, so we are what we are. Amen? I hope you like preachers in plain brown wrappers because that's what you got here today. Revelation chapter number 7, would you stand with me as we honor the Word of God? We're going to read beginning in verse number 9. After this, after the sealing of the 144,000, we spoke about them the last two weeks. After this, I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne. Now, that's not saying that God needs to be saved. This is saying that God does the saving, amen? And when we're saved, that salvation belongs to our God. We're supposed to take the salvation that He gave us. And we're supposed to give it back to Him with our hearts and our lives and our service. That's why these elders that we've already seen in the book of Revelation, they're casting their crowns before the Lord. Everything that God has done in us, we're supposed to be returning it to Him as stewards. We're not here just to get, but rather God gives us what we need, our salvation so that we can live a life. That brings glory and honor back to him. Verse number 11, and all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God. I've said it a hundred times. I'll say it a hundred and one. Music is not worship. Music can be part of worship. But worship here, they're worshiping God by falling down on their faces before God. It's an act of humility. Worship is, yes, it can be about music, it can be about Bible truth, it can be about prayer, but it is from the heart as we worship Him in spirit and in truth. Verse 12, saying, Amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. I wish I could say that with the passion that I ought to be saying it, that they're no doubt saying it here before the throne of God. And then verse 13, one of the elders answered saying unto me, what are these which are arrayed in white robes and Whence came they? He's referring to this unnamed, unnumbered multitude. And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve Him day and night in His temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Let's pray. Father, bless the Word of God today. Give us grace and wisdom and boldness compassion, charity. You said charity never fails. Lord, we're not seeking to be eloquent here today. We're seeking to be effective. We realize that any effectiveness is not going to be from our personality, our preparation, or our delivery. It's going to come from the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. So we are asking for that presence and that power today. If someone is here and is not saved, I pray that you'd speak to their heart and draw them to you For us as your children who are saved, I pray that you would draw us closer uh, to be the the God-honoring, giving back to you what you've given to us, the kind of saints, Lord, that we ought to be. And we ask your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As a reminder, we've said this in previous messages as we're preaching through the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is not written chronologically. Within each vision or revelation, sometimes we will find key words, such as verse number 7, uh, excuse me, verse number 9, which says, after this, after this. Now, that doesn't even mean that the event is happening chronologically, but it could mean that it's being revealed to John in that particular order. And so oftentimes, if we read through Revelation and we think that everything is happening successively chronologically, we can get very confused in our understanding of the end times. Oftentimes, God will give a vision uh, of one thing, and then there will be a parenthetical vision that's connected, but it's not necessarily just a perfect time chart. You've got God bringing us through the tribulation period with seals, and then another trip through the tribulation period with trumpet judgments. And all of these, if we don't understand how God has written and revealed the book of Revelation, it's easy to get tripped up. But I will say this, it takes knowledge of the whole Bible just to even begin to piece it all together. I I, I feel so, I have, this is the first time i preached through the book of Revelation in my 30 plus years of ministry. And the reason being is because I always feel inadequate. You know, as you say, well, there are some absolutes. I understand that. And there are some things out of this book that I believe absolutely, and I feel pretty confident that my understanding is correct but there's also some other areas that are a little bit vague. Always we base the vague stuff on the things that is that are crystal clear and absolute. Otherwise, if we start building doctrines upon theories, we could end up getting far away from the truth. So we need to be cautious, but we need to be students of the whole Bible. If you want to learn what the book of Revelation means, then you should get real familiar with the book of Daniel and vice versa. First Thessalonians has a lot to say that's relevant to the book of Revelation. Ezekiel and uh, Hosea and Habakkuk and Isaiah and Matthew 24, as we've already seen last week and the week before, what Jesus taught on the Mount of Olives in Matthew 24 is they are direct keys to understanding in the book of Revelation. But We try to piece it together. We try to figure out the things that God has revealed that He wants us to know. Which brings us to my first point here this morning out of verse 13 and 14, is who are these multitude? They're unnamed. They're unnumbered. We find white linen-robed saints around the throne here in the third heaven. We find it in verse number 9. We find it in verse number 11. But you know what? This, there's a connection, I believe, to these unnamed, unnumbered saints. Hold your place and just look back at Revelation 6 and verse number 9. We've, we've talked about these. It says, When he had opened the fifth seal, he said, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord? Holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, and so forth. And so right here, we're at the same location. This is uh, around the altar. In Revelation 6, these souls are under the altar. So yeah, there are some differentiating features here. They're arrayed in white robes and linen and they're right there with those elders and those four beasts. So it's the same location. Now we will say this, that if you study out those white robes in the Scripture, they represent human righteousness. Revelation 19, verse number 8, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints." righteousness of saints. That's not speaking of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ that we receive when we get born again. Our garments and our robes has to do with our personal righteousness. Listen, brothers and sisters, as I've already said here this morning, God saved us and it is only his righteousness that will get us into heaven. But when we stand before Him one day, I don't know about you, I want to have a white, clean robe to cover my nakedness. Second Corinthians chapter number 5 talks of that. Too often people are misinformed and misled into thinking that once we get born again, we're on our way to heaven and everything between now and heaven doesn't matter. Au contraire. Nothing could be further from the truth. When we stand before God one day, and yeah, if you're saved, you'll go to heaven and you'll escape the condemnation of hell. And that's good and that's great. But if you think that that's all there is to it, you are going to be sadly disappointed when you stand before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. While we don't believe that these here, these untold, uh, unnamed multitude are the church, white robes still represent human righteousness in the church age. How do we know that? Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 27. We as the bride of Christ, it says that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy, holy. And without blemish. The church, the bride of Christ, we want to stand before our bridegroom someday in a clean white wedding garment. Amen. Not a filthy one. Listen, I lived, I lived as a Christian, a born again believer. I lived some filthy years and I thank God for the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm so glad that He, through His blood, will cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Thank God that those stains and those wrinkles and those spots are a work of the sanctifying power of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I also find in the Word of God that white garments seem to have a connection to martyrdom. Of course, these untold number, I believe it's the same ones in Revelation 6. Who have been beheaded. They've been martyred during the tribulation period. But if you go back to some of the, some of the revelation of the seven churches and you find that, for instance, the church of Sardis, which means red ones, they were a persecuted and a martyred church. And the Lord Jesus says that he offers them robes of fine linen that seems to be a connection between these white linen garments and martyrdom. And then then you find that the Laodicean church, Jesus said, you don't have any garments at all. You're naked. And you need to realize that you're not clothed and you're not wealthy. I believe we are in the Laodicean church age. And much of Christianity, we've got mega churches and literally, you know, the evangelical movement is supposed to be such a political force in our country. Listen, we need to be more of a spiritual force than a political force. What good does it do if Christianity influences who we vote on every four years when Christianity cannot even influence shutting down the liquor industry and the bars and all of this nonsense that we see? We were somewhere here just the other day, and it was said to me, you know, there were some people that we, you know, they, they were talking about church, and they were sitting at the restaurant, and they were, they were all drinking beer. And it's like, well, they're, they're, I thought that they were Christians. They were talking, and I just looked at them, it's like, where are you, what planet have you been on? You know, it used to be that you could say, hey, if they just got, done with church, or if they're talking about church, they're not going to be sitting in the restaurant and drinking beer or wine. But that is not the case anymore. We're in Laodicea, where, hey, we 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 got liberties, and we've got grace, and, hey, everything's fine. We don't have to worry about martyrdom or persecution. You know what the most horrible thing for the average Christian would be today? For the world and their friends and family to think that they're weird? We should be respectable. Let me tell you something. You go back in church history. You ought to learn church history. There was a time when people who believed like we believe, they did it at the risk of their head every day of their life. Well, you talk about, you talk about the cream rising to the top. You talk about weeding out all of the hypocrites and the insincerity. If we ever get that back in our country today, I'm not saying I want that. I'm not welcoming persecution. The devil uses persecution greatly, and it's a powerful tool. But I'm telling you, one thing's for sure, there were people... The Apostle Paul knew that if he converted to Christianity, it wasn't going to make him a best-selling author... It wasn't going to make him some big keynote speaker that's selling out huge gymnasiums so that he can tell them about their best life now. No, he knew that he's changing sides and it's going to mean that he's going to have a price on his head from the Jews and from the Romans and basically everywhere that he went. Would you live the Christian life if you had to risk that kind of persecution? Oh, I think that I would. Really, you have strong faith. How's it affecting your faithful service of the Lord right now? If you've got that kind of faith that you'd lay your neck down, then you're going to be laying your life down on a daily basis a whole lot more than what people are today. There are many contrasts between these unnumbered, unnamed multitude and the church. These are not named, but the church we find in the book of Revelation, the bride and the connection to heavenly Jerusalem and uh, all these different things about the church, the body of Christ, etc. We find that this unnumbered, unnamed multitude, they have palms in their hands. The church is spoken of as having crowns on our head, not palms in our hand. If you study history, the, the, under the Roman Empire, the servants, the slaves, if you would, would, would have palms in their hands. And Perhaps you've seen it in the old movies where they'll have those palms in their hands and they're fanning the royalty, the king, or the master. And I believe that these are there with the palms in their hand because they are day and night. They are serving the Lord. They're around the throne says of them that they have washed their garments in the blood of the Lamb. Whereas we, as the church, we have been washed ourself, our soul has been washed in the blood. It is said of these that they came out of great tribulation, whereas to us it is said that we have been delivered from the wrath to come. Sadly, most of the commentaries that talk about Revelation chapter number 7 say that this is spiritually referring to the church. And, you know, most of these commentators, they just take everything in the book of Revelation, and if it has something to do with the blood, or if it has something to do with linen or righteousness, they just presume that it must be talking about the church. And that is why it is so it is so imperative that we learn how to rightly divide the word of truth. Key factors point to this being further revelation of the martyred saints who were saved out of the tribulation period. You know, I find it interesting that Christ reveals this to John immediately after the sealing of the 144,000 Jews. And I personally believe that those 144,000 Jews are going to be worldwide missionaries that are going to be preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And yes, I believe, contrary to what some preachers have preached, I believe that there are going to be multitudes of Gentiles that will be saved out of the tribulation period. It won't be easy. It won't be pleasant. We read of some things, we'll talk about it here in a minute, that God has promised to these unnamed, unnumbered multitude that He's going to make sure that these things never happen to them again. Why? Because they spent a lot of time, months and months, maybe even years of dealing with all of these disasters and tribulations and just surviving through all of the plagues and all of the catastrophe that's going on on planet earth. It was an amazing thing. I believe that these 144,000 are going to have a very influential factor in tribulation salvation. Not to mention, listen, I understand in first Thessalonians, excuse me, second Thessalonians, it says that God's going to send them strong delusion. And it has often been said that when the rapture takes place that the world won't know it. I can't prove that, folks. I think that the rapture of true Christians all at once on one day disappearing, I think there's going to be some evangelistic umph behind that fact. And uh, I know the devil is doing everything he can to precondition our culture to try to understand it differently. All the infatuation with aliens, all the infatuations with superpowers and superhumans and all of, you know, the, the undead and all of that, all of this mysterious science fiction stuff, it's preconditioning most of the world to just kind of dismiss this, well, the aliens must have uh, helped us out by getting rid of all of these weird Christians, right? But there's going to be enough people in families that had a godly grandma or had somebody that said they were a Christian and actually lived it, and all of a sudden they all disappear. They're going to be thinking, maybe there's something to this. But I believe the 144,000 will play an influential factor in these unnumbered, unnamed multitude that will be saved out of great tribulation. Number two, I want to talk about just for a few minutes, and I mean a few minutes, about some of these admirable qualities of this multitude. Look at verse number 14 of our text. Of course, you know, the question was a rhetorical question. It's asked of John, uh, what are these that are arrayed? And John said, sir, thou knowest. John didn't have any, he didn't know who they were. And sometimes God will ask us a rhetorical question just so that we will seek the answer. I think if you were in John's shoes and you're seeing all of this at the throne, he was probably so overwhelmed with the magnificence and the magnitude of this site that he didn't even know what questions to ask. He probably had a thousand questions he would like to ask. And so God had to give a little help here. And he said, hey, John, all this unnamed, unnumbered multitude, who are they? And John was wise enough. He didn't try to impress him with his Bible knowledge and say, well, you know, It could be in the book of Daniel. John didn't do that. He just said, I have no idea. You tell me. (laughs) I know he didn't word it that way, but I think that's what he's saying. And so it says right here, What are these which were arrayed in white robes? And whence came thee? And said, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they, watch this, which came out of great tribulation. It says in verse 14 that they came out. When I think about them coming out, the first thing that I think about that's relevant to you and I is that we're supposed to come out as well. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 17, wherefore, Come out from among them, that's speaking of the world, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Verse 18, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Hey, you want to have a close personal relationship with God? You want God, you want to be able to sing like we heard here that He loves me like I was His only child? Do you want to be able to call upon Him and talk to Him and really feel like that, hey, maybe I've got an audience with the Creator of the universe? Is He my Heavenly Father that I can tell Him everything that's on my heart and bring my request before Him and He'll care enough? Hey, that's a relationship that is practical. We have a positional relationship in Jesus Christ as the sons of God. Nothing can change that. Nothing can make God love you more than what He loves you as He demonstrated that on the cross of Calvary. But there is a relational fellowship. And if you want God to be real in your life and powerful, I was talking to someone not long ago. They're talking about their grandma and their grandma, they were sitting around and grandma said, you know what? You need to, you need to get prepared. There's, there's a big storm coming in and it's going to get ugly. She didn't have the weather app. There was no way she could have known that. Grandma was a godly woman who walked close to the Lord and God revealed to her what was going to happen within the next few days, and guess what? It happened. You say, that sounds a little spooky. No, that used to happen all the time. I've had a few times where it's happened like that with me on a real small scale. Not like big like that. I guess I'd, I've never achieved to walking as close to God as Grandma did. But I believe that it's real. The Holy Spirit of God lives inside of us. And that is what is lacking in modern Christianity today, is that people don't walk close enough to the Lord to truly experience His power working in our lives. I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. There's a condition. Listen, we're saved by grace, not conditional, but our fellowship and our relationship with God is very conditional. And it is dependent upon us coming out from among them and be being separate, saith the Lord. That's what God is looking. He's trying to call out a people for His name. Modern Christianity says, well, you have to be like the world in order to reach the world. Now, you're going to reach more people. You're going to draw more flies with honey than vinegar true, but all you'll have is a bunch of flies. And that's what modern Christianity has become. You And you start compromising the truths of this Bible. Listen, you say that you're saved. Jesus Christ is your Savior. Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. We ought to be living righteous and holy and ethical lives before God because we're saved, not in order to be saved, but because we are God's children. You're a child of God, act like it. Be separate, come out. Not only that, but I find that these multitude, that they had washed their robes. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse number 11 says, and such were some of you. Paul had just got done talking about all of the different things like fornication and idolatry and all of the, the, the horrible wickedness that comes with being a sinner in the human race. Once again, modern Christianity says, oh, it's all grace. God doesn't care how you live. As long as you believe in Jesus Christ, we're saved by grace. Paul said, such were some of you. But he said, ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. These multitude had washed their robes. God wants us to live a life like we've been washed as well. He wants us to live and walk clean before him. And then the the, the last thing on point number two I want to bring out is that they hang out with God and they serve him. You know, we see this. They're hanging out around the throne of God. It says that they're serving Him. They're following the Lamb. Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse number 20, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. You know what you have right there? You have the basic tenant of a local church. Two or three. That's all it takes. Just two people or three. If we are gathered together in the name of Jesus, you know, we could be, there could be 500 people here, and it doesn't mean that the Lord's present here. How many churches are perhaps meeting here in our county that have hundreds of people? And sadly, there may not be even two in an entire congregation that are actually meeting in Jesus' name. Some are coming because, well, we're supposed to, or I'm just paying my dues. I'm checking this off of my box. That's not how we get the Lord's presence in our life. It's when we gather. You know the problem? I could preach here and say, hey, you need to be faithful to church. I could talk about forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. I could tell you all kind of stories how, hey, the best Christians are the ones who never miss a church service. And I could go on and on, and you'd be sitting there going, yeah, I know, I've heard about this, and maybe I should be at church more. I've been thinking about that. Listen, you know what the problem is? The problem's not your church attendance. The problem's your heart. These, they couldn't wait. If we have a heart for God, we can't wait to get around God's people. We can't wait to hear the word of God. We can't wait to sing, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. That's our problem right there. It all comes from the heart. This unnamed, unnumbered multitude, listen, they came out of great tribulation. They saw what God did for them. They saw the contrast between how how they felt before the throne of God and how they felt when their whole world was crashing in and they were hungry and thirsty and hot, everything was bad. What a contrast. Maybe that's the problem in churches today is we've forgotten the contrast between being lost and saved, darkness to light. Maybe we need that first love back and remember what our life was like before Jesus found us. Maybe then we would rejoice And we would want to hang out with God and to serve Him even more. And then finally, number three, there are some promised blessings for this multitude. The Lord said here that um, they will no more hunger or thirst. That's physical discomfort. I don't like physical discomfort, do you? Most of our problem in America today is not Coming up with enough food to eat. Most of our problem is learning how to say no to the food that we have available to eat. Wouldn't you, don't raise your hand. We all know it. It's true. I mean, literally, I mean, um, can you, can you imagine back some of you that are grandparents? And you remember the days when you worked in the fields, whether it was picking cotton or hoeing the corn or even, even, you know, we are in North Carolina, even working in the backer fields. Okay. You remember those days where you were sweating and you had blisters and calluses and you couldn't wait to get to the end of your row because there was a bucket of water that you could dip a ladle in and you could get some water. You remember those days, some of you. Can you imagine in those days, somebody to tell you the multi-billion dollar industry that is gyms, workout facilities, diet programs? Can you imagine what the old-timers must think of how we are commonly living our lives today. Like, you are happen to spend hundreds and thousands of dollars just to keep from killing yourself with food. We just grabbed a hoe or a shovel, and we just worked it off all day long. Now we can't change our culture. And I'm not saying that we can or that we should. I'm just simply trying to bring some realistic perspective in just how far our society has drifted away from the things that really matter. And the way that we live our life, that's what church and Christianity has become. People come into the house of God and, hey, we're fat. We don't need anything. Here I am, preacher. Bless me if you can. Hey, what do you got for our young people? We came here because we want to know what you got for me. You know, there was a time when people would come to the house of God and it'd be good. What can I give? What can I do? I'm here to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm here to make a difference. We've got a world around us that's lost and on their way to hell. And I want to jump on board and I want to get involved and do something for my Savior, Jesus Christ. But modern Christianity is just like modern culture. The church is just, well, what do you got for me? And so we're spiritually fat and we're lazy and we are fine connoisseurs of preaching, by the way. It's like what Solomon said in the book of Proverbs, the full soul loatheth the honeycomb. Well, I didn't really want clover honey. I was kind of hoping for some, some, what's that other, um, I'm sorry? Sour wood. Yeah, that's the good stuff. I agree. I like it better than clover, but Brother Jerry's honey is about the best I've ever eaten. You know, it's like, I was kind of hoping for a different kind. Listen, when you're hungry, the full soul loatheth the honeycomb, but to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. Listen, when we're, if you're out there working in God's field, and you're out there... Fighting the devil and trying to live righteous and trying to raise your kids and do right by God. You're going to be so famished when it comes Sunday morning or when it comes Wednesday. You're not going to be able to wait till next Sunday. It's like, I got to come Wednesday night and I got to get some of the word of God. I've got to get some refreshment. I need some fellowship. Why? Because you're living the true Christian life. We don't like physical discomfort, I don't, but it plays a part in this life that we live here on this earth. It's not the way that God wanted it to be, but when man sinned in the garden, it's the way that it is. No more environmental discomfort. The sun is not going to be hot, it's not going to be hot and all of those things. And he said that one of the blessings is that they're going to be fed and led by the Lamb. I love that blessing that God has for this multitude. They're going to follow the lamb and the lamb's going to lead them. They get to be around Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? I don't know what to think. Brother Spurgeon talked about this. I'm not sure. I know that some of, some of you ladies are uncomfortable with, you know, we're going to be like Jesus Christ and the resurrection body, but I'm kind of uncomfortable with being a bride. Can't, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't, you know, but it's going to be a blessing. Bottom line is being around Jesus Christ. That's what really matters. And then it says that God will wipe away their tears. If you've been around any length of time, I know some of you young people, you've had some grief and you've had some sorrow, but... For the most part, the younger that you are, you haven't experienced real sorrow and real grief. Not yet. You get into your younger adult years and then your middle-age years, and most of us have experienced the loss of a loved one, whether it be mama or daddy. I know for some of you, and my heart breaks for you, nobody wants to bury their children, but some of you have experienced the loss of your child and my heart goes out for you, sorrow and grief. And listen, there are tears in this life. We have heartbreaks, and we have challenges, and we have disappointments. Sorrow and grief are part of this sin-cursed world that we live in. God cares. Listen, God cares, but He doesn't interfere. He is not the emotional therapist of the universe. He's God and you might as well just accept that fact that he is God and he is holy and he created us and he's the one that should be asking the questions, not us. Why God? We should be saying, what God are you trying to show me about yourself? God didn't comfort Isaac over the perceived loss of Joseph. You ever thought about that? Isaac thought his favorite boy was dead for all of those years. And it wasn't until Joseph's a grown man ruling Egypt that Isaac even had a clue. Or excuse me, that Jacob even... Did I say Isaac earlier? It's grandpa. They were related. Jacob... <laughs> I told you I was plain brown rapper. Jacob didn't even have a clue that Joseph was still alive and God didn't even think to give him a dream or it's, you know, it's gonna be okay. He sorrowed all of those years. Job, all that Job went through, God never tried to comfort Job. Even at the end, he showed up and he said, Job, where were you when I created all of this? who do you think you are? Listen, if anybody could question what God was allowing in his life, certainly it would be Job. And Job didn't even curse God and challenge God. He just just wished he'd never been born. And then God shows up and he said, who do you think you are, Job? I'm God. And you know what Job said? He said, "I, I loathe myself and I repent. In sackcloth and ashes, Job recognized just how that even our grief can cause us to dishonor God. He didn't protect his disciples from the storm, but listen to all that trust him. He makes it right in the end. This unnumbered multitude that trusted him, they still went through scorching heat. They still got so thirsty that their tongue would cleave to the roof of their mouth. They still ended up with hunger. They still ended up with persecution and ended up being beheaded. But in the end, God made it all right. God, God's going to make it all right. The problem is we have to trust Him because God's going to make it all right in eternity, not in this little teeny tiny life in which we live. Conclusion. Will there be tears in heaven? We've heard that there are not. Revelation 21 and verse number 4, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. I'm looking forward to that, aren't you? But Revelation 21 verse 4 takes place after there's a new heaven and a new earth created. I believe, and I can't prove this, maybe some of you are smarter than me. I'm sure many of you are smarter than me. I can't prove this, but I believe that there's going to be weeping at the judgment seat of Christ. When God takes our life and puts it through the fire, and we see the loss of things that were so important to us, and they just get burned up, and they're nothing. I believe there's going to be weeping there. I believe there's going to be weeping at the great white throne of judgment when we see loved ones judged and cast into the lake of fire. I'm sure there's going to be weeping when we see them judged and we're thinking, I didn't tell them about Jesus. I didn't witness to them. And here God's casting them into the lake of fire and I never told them. Or I didn't live a godly life before them. Or even if we did witness, or we did live godly, just the fact that someone we care about, mama, dad, grandpa, our children, to watch God and His holiness. I'm not saying that we'll be upset at God. God will be just, and we'll know it. But the thought of their souls perishing for eternity, I believe there's going to be weeping there. Luke chapter 13 and verse 26, Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets and the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. I'm looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more weeping or pain or sorrow. But until we get to that point, there's some time and there's some souls, there's some decisions that are going to take place. And if you think, well, I'm a Baptist or I'm an American or I did this or I did that, you think that that's going to get you by in heaven. Or you're going to have the right answers before St. Peter at the pearly gates. It ain't happening that way. You're going to stand before him and he's going to look at you. If you've never been born again, he's going to say, I never knew you. You may know about him, but that's not what's going to get you in. What's going to get you in is him knowing you. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. Listen, can you think of anything worse than going to hell when you could have so easily made it to heaven? Acknowledging that you're a sinner. Confessing that to the Lord. Repenting and saying, Lord, I'm, I believe in Jesus Christ and what you did on the cross of Calvary. And I'm putting my faith and trust in you. I'm asking you to be my Savior. It's as simple as that. Can you imagine why someone would want to go to hell in this day and age that we live, hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, sitting in the pew of a church like this, watching it on live stream, having a Bible in your living room, and ended up in hell because you just simply wouldn't humble yourself and acknowledge your need not Jesus helping you get saved, but Jesus totally saving you. I heard a gentleman recently, just about a month from his 89th birthday, and he told me a story that, amazing story. He said when he was younger, he came up on a car accident, and there was another car, there was another person had got there just before him, and this was a horrible accident. And the person that got there before him had pulled the driver out of the car. They were, you know, they were gurgling and you could tell that their lungs were filled up with fluid. And this person took the driver and sat him up against a tree that was nearby. And he said, within minutes, within minutes, that driver had passed away. And he remembered feeling how helpless that he was, that here was somebody that needed saving. But he said, I didn't know what to do. I had no idea. Now, if you know anything about that, you know that standing them up against a tree was probably the worst thing that you could do. But you know what this gentleman did? He said, right after that, he said, I made a commitment that if this ever happens again, I'm going to know what to do. He said, I joined the volunteer fire department and I went through their training and their classes so that if this ever happened, I'm going to know what to do. You know what? I believe that story is profound and powerful for two different reasons. Number one, if you're not saved, you're on your way to hell. You ought to at least have enough courage and diligence to say, hey, I better make sure that I know what to do for my own soul. You know, nobody can force you to be saved, but I tell you what, you ought to at least know what the Bible says on how to be saved. But then those of us that are saved, we've got people all around us that are dying and on their way to hell. We ought to at least know what to do. We ought to know how to witness to them We ought to know how to lead them to Christ. We at least ought to make it that important. If you've ever experienced what this gentleman did, it'll play and it'll make an impact on your life. And yet the reality of it is every time you read an obituary in the paper, it's happening all around us. People are going off into eternity and many of them have never had a clear presentation of the gospel. You say, well, they're having a funeral in a church. Listen, I've been to funerals. I've been to a lot of funerals. And I'm telling you, more often than not, they just talk about this this person, this gentleman or this lady. Oh, they were a good person. They're in a better place. But they never say anything about them being born again. We need to be faithful witnesses. We need to be like these unnumbered, unnamed, we're not trying to make a name for ourselves. we're just simply trying to glorify the Lamb and show people how they too can be saved, not out of great tribulation, but out of a sin-cursed world and a sin-cursed soul that we are born with. You can be born again, you can be washed in the blood if you'll only repent and trust Him.